You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. John Wathen is what is known as a career man. He played college baseball at the University of San Diego before being drafted by the Kansas City Royals as the fourth overall pick in 1971. Worked his way through the Royals system before debuting in 1976. Played catcher for the majority of his games, but he also played first base and in left and right field. His last season as a player was with the 1985 World Champions. World Champions. Heading into this season, he's one of just 180 Major League Baseball players to have played at least 10 years in the majors and spent his entire career with one team. But Watham went beyond his playing career at Kansas City. He also served as a coach, a scout, a color commentator on the television broadcast, and even as a manager, almost all of it exclusively in the Royals organization, though he did manage for the Angels and coach for the Red Sox. He was a good hitter with the ability to drive in runs, but he was best known for his ability to steal bases. His 36 stolen bases in one season remains a major league record for catchers. So, John, welcome to Sports Connections. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, as I was saying earlier, I, I, I just think your family is great. I love your daughter. Uh, she's just been always been so helpful as I've worked with the Royals. We'll get family in a little bit. I want to start with the fact that you played 10 years with one team. And I was surprised that the number of players with 10 plus years, all with one team, is so small. That surprises you as well, doesn't it? Oh, very much so. Uh, you know, in the history of baseball, when you think about all the things that have happened through the years and all the records that have been posted, uh, something like that is is really, really special with all the players that have played thousands and thousands and thousands of players through the years. So I was very lucky. You know, that was a time, though, David, when a lot of guys didn't move from team to team. Yeah. And I think that was part of our success, the 10 years I played from 76 to 85, we were in postseason seven out of 10 years, basically the same guys. I mean, there were some tweaks now and then, but right. I think it helped me as a utility player, a guy that played part-time sometimes, full-time sometimes, that they didn't want to make a lot of changes uh, because we were successful, we were winning. Yeah. So that made me play, I think, those 10 years with the Royals. And free agency was around, but it wasn't so, it wasn't so prevalent. It wasn't like, okay, I've got five years in. I'm just going to go shop the market. There was, I, I would think, and I started following baseball long before that, but I started following it more closely uh, in the seventies. It seems like loyalty was a bigger deal uh, back in your era. Most definitely. And arbitration guys didn't go to arbitration very much when that started because they were afraid they might get blackballed by their team. You know, yeah. uh, now it's pretty normal to go after what three years in the big leagues. I think they can go from, you know, making six hundred thousand to one point five million. You know, ours our jumps in salary were very small and very steady through my ten year period. But yeah, I think guys wanted to stay in the same city where they, especially having success. If you had success in the city and your team was doing well, you didn't really want to go anywhere. And you had a family, and so that you didn't want to move the kids. <clears throat> And that, that seems to be uh, not as big of an issue now. Either they leave their kids at home with their wife and they travel for six months uh, or they move around a lot. But uh, I think that's I think it's just, it's definitely changed it, for the better, for the worse. I don't know. For the better, certainly financially, it's changed. But, you know, from the family standpoint, it may not be as good. Did you have opportunities to go elsewhere or was it pretty much a done deal for you that you would stay with Kansas City? You know, I had heard rumors that there was a possibility towards the end of my career that I might get traded to here or there. Uh, just rumors that never happened. Uh, it was a funny story. I got released 
in the spring training, the last day of spring training in 1986 after playing in 85. And I had another two years left on my contract. I had signed a four-year contract. And so John Scherholz called me. I was with George Brett and Jamie Quirk. We were staying together in spring training and said, is, is Duke there? And they said, no, he's, he's, at, uh, he's at Mass right now. But, uh, well, he said, have him call me. No cell phones, obviously, back then. So I yeah. got called and <laughs> I come into the room where George and Jamie Quirk are. And they say, you're supposed to call John Scherholz. But don't worry, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I might be gone right now. So I call him. He says, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have to release you, but we want you to stay on as a coach to help out in the bullpen." Jim Schaefer was in the bullpen, and we want you to have a future in, in that coaching and managing, perhaps one day. So I said, "You know, I just won the World Series. I've almost got my ten years in. If I end up coaching a little bit in the big leagues and managing the big leagues, I'll get my ten years, which is the full pension that you need." So I said, "Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna stay on." And that was a big part of it, David, because my family was in Kansas City going to school and everything. I didn't really want to play anymore. I think I'd had enough. I was in the big leagues. I started in the big leagues when I was 26 and a half, almost 27. So I was probably 36 then and, and knew it was pretty much the end of my career. So it worked out pretty well to stay there. And then Dick Hauser had the brain tumor in, the, in the, that summer in 86. And at the All-Star game, they detected it. So I moved in from the bullpen to coach first base the rest of that year, the second half. And then I managed in Omaha the next year in 87 before coming to Kansas City to manage. So it was it was uh, kind of set in place and it worked out very well for me. Did you consider coaching, managing? I mean, was that something that you had thought would would happen when your career was done? Or is that was that strictly because John Sherholt suggested it? This is the kind of insight that Whitey Herzog had as a baseball player and my first manager when I came up in 76. He told a sports writer, and I think in 1976 or 7, my first or second year, that John Watson will probably manage in the big league one day. Wow. Which was pretty amazing. So that was the first time I thought about it, that it would be a possibility. If, if Whitey Herzog, who I loved and respected as a manager, said that, well, maybe there is some truth to it. So I... I did have it in the back of my mind after that. Okay. Um, so why did you choose? I mean, obviously we talked about the fact that you did finally manage with the, the angels coach with the Red Sox, but even in your, in your, your post playing career, almost everything was with Kansas city. Was that a family thing as well? No. Um, you know, the opportunity was there. Sherholz asked me to go to Omaha and manage after I was coaching. So I did that. Billy Gardner was fired at the end of August that year. So I actually had a week or two less in the Omaha season before coming to Kansas City to manage. <clears throat> and that lasted through uh, May of 91 when I was let go. So had I had the opportunity at that time, Herc Robinson was the GM in 91. Had he said, we're going to let you go, but, you know, you've had 20-some years with the Royals. We'd love you to stay and, and do something in scouting or player development. I would have stayed. I wouldn't have mm -hmm. done something. Um, but that did not happen at the time. So I went to Kent, uh, to the Angels for a couple of years, third base coach, bench coach. We got in a bus accident going from New York to Baltimore. Buck Rogers got injured, so I took mm -hmm. over the team for three months. 
um, after he got injured. And uh, which, by the way, isn't the, the best job in the world being an interim manager for a team that's not very good? Seven <laughs> 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 I mean, games over 500 with the Royals, and it, that dropped a little bit. Still ended up over 500 as a manager, which was good. But so that, and then I got let go there and went to Boston for a year. We had the strike year in 94, my last year in uniform in the big leagues. And uh, they changed managers, they changed general managers, and I wasn't asked back. So I said, you know what? I'm going to maybe try to do something else right now. I had 17 years in the big leagues. And, uh, you know, as I said, you only need 10 for the pension. So um, I did a little work for the baseball network in 95. They did some regional games prior to Fox coming in and ESPN and doing all the games they do today. So I did about 10 or 15 games that year and got to watch my my uh, second son in Legion ball his last year helped coach actually. And, and then I went on and did some radio for the Royals in 96, 97 and 98. I sat out to watch Derek, my second son at Oklahoma all year came back in 99. Allard Baird, who was our assistant GM to Herc Robinson asked me if I'd be interested in come back to Royals. I said, absolutely. I never wanted to leave. Yeah. And uh, so I came back and did some scouting and player development work. And I've been doing that ever since uh, still today, I'm working part-time in the minor leagues, our player development program and going around and evaluating our minor league kids. So I've, it's been 46 years with the Royals out of 50. That's, that's pretty impressive, John. Um, now yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm gonna going to reveal something people may not have considered before people who have been following the Royals almost as long as I have, I consider myself a lifelong Royals fan, not mine theirs because I was, 11 years old when they started. Um, but you you played in the first heyday of the Royals. You made your uh, your debut in the year that they made. Uh, uh, you, let me say that again. You made your debut the year they had their first postseason appearance. And after you retired, they missed the playoffs for the next 29 years. So the secret is out. You were the reason for their success during that 10-year period, weren't you? It was all me. It was all me. <laughs> George Brett rode my coattails for those 10 years that I was in Kansas City. You know, he wouldn't be the man he is today, have the records he has today without me. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you can laugh about, uh, you know, laugh about yourself. I think too many people not only I mean, it's good to take your job seriously. It's good to take your craft seriously, but it's also good not to take yourself seriously. So I had to throw that in. there. I knew what your answer would be or, or at least. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know you well, but I know you well enough to know that there would be some sarcasm in there. Uh, but do, do talk about the fact you had a 10 year run and, and the team was good during those 10 years. Yeah. Um, going back to George, you know, how many people uh, have had the opportunity to play in the minor leagues with a future Hall of Famer, uh, play in the big leagues with a future Hall of Famer and manage a future Hall of Famer? I was with George all the way from 1971 when we both signed through 91 when I got let go and went to the angels. So a 20, a 20 year period together with, a, with a guy that uh, the base, best baseball player I've ever seen, you know, you know, on my team or anybody I ever saw play uh, what he could do on the field with a bat, especially in big situations was amazing. Um, to answer your question, those, those 10 years were very special. Um, I wasn't playing much in 76, my first year. And this is a funny story. At least I think it is talking about uh, 
talking about what uh, was like in 76. I think I only had like 40 at bats in 76. That time we didn't have as many pitchers. We had maybe 10 pitchers, not 13, not 14 like they did. Yeah. They got longer, as you know, starters. So most teams had three catchers and maybe the third guy could play another position, which was me. We had Bob Stinson and Buck Martinez and hadn't caught much or played much all year. We're going into to Oakland to at the end of the year to try to beat them to finally get past them in the playoffs because they had been the dominant team in the American League West. Larry Gurra hadn't pitched a lot. He pitched out of the bullpen a lot. One of the games against Oakland, uh, he asked Larry Gurra, who do you want to catch tonight? He said, John Wathen. And well, he said, okay, that sounds good to me. That's, that's the guy you got as a third catcher. And that was the game we won four to nothing against Oakland and clinched the American League West for the first time ever with me catching, which is hard to believe. Uh, so it was a pretty special time for me, not having played much or been a big part of the team that year, to do that. Larry Gurra, who was from Joliet, Illinois, his parents were back listening to Harry Carey on the broadcast of the White Sox game at the time, I believe. And when he did the White Sox games, and Harry, of course, says, Holy cow, Whitey Herzog's lost his mind. Gurra's pitching and Wathen's catching in a big game for them. <laughs> so it was pretty special to have Larry ask for me, uh, have Whitey say, yeah, that sounds good, and uh, to have that 4 nothing shutout and, and clinch a tie, or actually clinched it for the first Western Division Championship in 76. First and time to be immortalized by the great Harry Carey in such a positive way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I got to ask you. Very typical of my career, David. <laughs> and you were drafted in 1971 in the first round, and then they the Royals picked another guy in the second round who who did okay in his career. Did you ever rub in the fact that you were picked well, ahead of George? No. What really happened? I don't know if you remember this. Back in the day, years years ago, there was two drafts. There was a January draft. And a June draft. The January draft was a small draft. Guys who had dropped out of school for whatever reason. And my reason was I played on a, a world team with the USA over in South America. So I was gone for a month. So I dropped out of school, had the option of going back my fourth year of signing. And uh, so I was in the January draft compared to the June draft. So as an example, Jamie Quirk in 1972 was the number one pick by the Royals that year. And he got $100,000. Well, the January draft in 1971, which is a small draft that has gone by the wayside many years ago, I got 10000 So that's the big difference. Okay. <laughs> but you were, you were still a first-round pick, and George was a second-round pick. Did you yeah. ever kid him about the fact that you were drafted higher than he was? No, because he knew my draft was a very small, <laughs> insignificant draft compared to the June draft. <laughs> so All we right. never <laughs> – but, you know, the interesting story there, Roy Branch out of St. Louis was the number one pick in front of him by the Royals that year. And uh, I don't know that Roy ever got to the big leagues. Uh, so there's been a lot of things like that. You look at uh, Gerard Dyson when we yeah. used to have three rounds in the draft, and he got picked in the 50th round by the Royals, just got his 10 years in the big leagues this year. So there's a lot of amazing stories. My son, Dusty, who's the third base coach for the Phillies now, the last four years, uh, he played in the minor leagues. 14 years as a non-drafted player. Normally non-drafted kids get weeded out in the first couple of years. Yeah. And then he managed 10 years in the minor leagues of Phillies before coming up. Uh, I can't believe it, but he's been in the big leagues four years now managing. And, you know, that's uh, 14, 20, he's 28 years in baseball now. That's, that's impressive for sure. Um, now, 
I want to talk before I get to your favorite teammates. I've noticed over your shoulder you have a picture of Ted Williams. You probably have a lot of pictures uh, yeah. Yeah, of baseball players. I, I talked to Bob Kendrick early when I first started doing these uh, podcasts, and he had an interesting point. He said, unlike any other sport, your favorite player, favorite baseball player when you were a kid remains your favorite baseball player, even as an adult. And and I thought about that and I said, you know what? You're right. My fa- my all time favorite baseball player is Hank Aaron. And oh, I started. David, I thought you were going to say me. <laughs> well, you're in the top 10. How about that? <laughs> but you're but you're in the January portion of it. How about that? <laughs> But, you know, he remained, even after he retired, he remained my favorite player. Who was your favorite player growing up? And, is, and would you still say, yeah, he's my all-time favorite? Well, I grew up in San Diego, and the San Diego Padres were still AAA in the Coast League. So the closest team, Angels didn't arrive till the 60s. So in the 50s, my favorite team was the Dodgers. So the 50s and 60s, I'd have to say – and this probably would, he had a great career for a long time, good home run hitter, but a lot of people would probably not pick him as their favorite player, but I'm glad I did for, for a reason. I'll tell you in a second, Frank Howard was an outfielder. Mm, big Frank. Yeah. I wasn't a catcher. And cause I played a lot of positions. I wasn't just a catcher as a kid either. I played the outfield first base and all over. And the thing that was neat about him being one of my favorite players, I got to tell him that later on and meet him and talk to him many, many times on the field and we became friends and, and what a great guy and a great human being besides being a great player, good power hitter, the Dodgers, you know, the Washington Senators, he had a ton of home runs in his career. So he, he was one. And then I, when I got older and got into college, Johnny Bench with Cincinnati was in the big leagues at 19, I think with Cincinnati. And I was 17 probably at the time, just finishing up my high school career and what he did, you know, his first couple of years in the big leagues, that became yeah. a, and I got to meet him and hang out with him a little bit too through the years. So how cool is that to have, have pick a couple of guys, you know, as your favorite players as, as a young man and be able to meet them and hang out with them and tell them that. Yeah, for sure. But talk about some of your favorite players. We've, we've joked about uh, George and Jamie, but who are some of the favorite teammates that you had through the years? Um, a bunch, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, to just mention one or two. Um, Jim Colburn was a, was a funny one, a favorite funny one, you know, who did a lot of crazy stunts with us. We had a lot of goof, goofballs back in the day, you know, probably more so than today. Thank goodness they didn't have cell phones with cameras in the day, you know, capture some of the stuff that we used to do. Um, Jamie and George, of course, um, uh, Dennis Leonard, Paul Swidorf, you know, I love catching those guys and they were big, became good friends. When I first got to Kansas, a lot, Kansas City, a lot of us uh, lived in Blue Springs. And so we all hung out a lot together. In fact, back in the day, Whitey didn't want us to have any food in the locker room after games. So a lot of times we'd have a couple beers in the locker room and we'd have pretzels and potato chips and beer. And that was it. And now they have chefs and all kinds yeah. of food that's really good. So we'd be hungry after talking about the game for an hour or so, having a couple beers. And I'd call Nancy on our landline of course and say i think we're gonna break a few of us are gonna come over and have a little barbecue so we you know 12 o'clock in the morning have a barbecue and sleep late in the day you know this is pre-kids or the kids were real young at the time maybe and marty Patton's another one i just remember marty Patton, god rest his soul he's gone dan quisenberry was another great one mm-hmm. who 
we've lost too young. Uh, guys like that, you know, that had a lot of fun in the game and enjoyed it, had a passion for the game. And I think most of us did at the time. You know, sometimes it becomes a job, but how about to love something and want to do it from the time you're eight years old, like I did, and to still be in it 50 years later? I mean, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world, regardless of what Lou Gehrig said in his speech. You, you mentioned Quisenberry, one of my favorite Quisenberry stories. And this was before I was in, in journalism, at least in Kansas City. I was covering things out in Manhattan uh, where I live. But I came up, came up and watched, uh, came up with a friend to watch a Royals game. And the passes that we had got us in before they opened the gates. So we're sitting down by the first base dugout. And Quisenberry's playing catch with somebody. It might have been David Cohn. I don't remember who it was. But it was playing catch with another player and out of the corner of his eye he sees these two guys who obviously aren't scouts and obviously are not normal fans because we're not you know the gates aren't open and stuff and so he you could see it in his eye fortunately I saw the his first eye contact with us and I knew he was kidding but about five minutes in he starts starts doing one of these things you know starts you know, grabbing his shoulder a little bit and wincing when he throws and he was trying to get a rumor started. And when he gets all when he gets all through, I, you know, I, I said something to him. I said, I knew you're one of the best actors in baseball quiz, you know, and, and, and he laughs and came over and signed an autograph for us and stuff. But he was he was such a prankster that he didn't it wasn't just inside the clubhouse. He, he let everybody know that he was in it to have fun. Yeah. We used to, when I sit in the bullpen with him uh, early in the game, he had kind of a routine out there. He would always uh, do a crossword puzzle or do a Sudoku or word games in the newspaper that day. Cause he really didn't have to pay too much attention until about the sixth or seventh inning. Of course, yeah. closer came in earlier. So my first couple of years, believe it or not, it's hard to believe for most people, we had no bullpen coach. So we, we had some antics going out there. Marty Pat. <laughs> Marty Patton used to, we had a George Thomas office out there underneath the right field GA seats. We had a barbecue in there and Marty Patton had a chef's hat and apron. Sometimes you'd see smoke coming out of there and people probably thought something was on fire, but Marty <laughs> would have some sausages or hamburgers out there. We just always had to make sure before we got called into the game, we didn't have mustard or ketchup on our face yeah. from the bullpen. So yeah, we, we had some fun out there. We, 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 uh, we really did, especially pre bullpen coach <laughs> times. who who brought the or who was the one to start the tomatoes in the bullpen was that quiz uh actually i think uh that might have been toma the, the oh, okay. way he, or it could have been marty Patton. marty Patton loved to love to grow tomatoes it could have been marty yeah but we we had tomatoes out there and and uh of course the there was an old groundskeeper head guy for Baltimore, Pat Santarone, who used to do that in the bullpen. And Baltimore was real famous for growing tomatoes in the bullpen in Baltimore as well. So, you know, years ago, there used to be, uh, you could call out on some of those uh, bullpen phones and, you know, order a pizza from somewhere or <laughs> sometimes call the other bullpen. Mo Dabrowski was famous for calling the other bullpen and telling them to get somebody up throwing. And of course, <laughs> <laughs> they, would, they would call down from there. They got say, who's, why is he throwing out there? Well, you called down there and told us to throw, <laughs> so, you know? So there was a lot of stuff going on in the bullpen that people don't know about and that we've never told. Yeah. Well, now you did. So, so secrets <laughs> out. Um, now, when, whenever the Royals television broadcast crew shows you watching the game up in the press box, you know, scouting, doing whatever you're doing, 
especially Ryan Lefevre, always says, now don't say he was just fast for a catcher. <laughs> Does that really bother you or are they just uh, joking about it? The fact that the fast for a catcher thing. Yeah, I, te- I the first time I heard him say that, I teased him years ago and he's never forgot it. I just was kidding him about it. I said, you know what, Ryan, why can't you just be fast? Why does it have to be fast for a catcher? You're kind of putting down all catchers in baseball that they can't run a lick. I said, there's some guys that can run a little bit as catchers. And so don't say fast for a catcher. Just say he runs well or he runs fast. And so he's always remembered that. And then every once in a while, Rex Heller will say it as well. And say, oh, I hope Duke's not listening right now, Rex. You're going to get a text anytime now. <laughs> well, um, what helped me, what helped me, David, run uh, as well as I did. When I signed, I was like a six, 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 seven, sixty, which was pretty good. And uh, but you know, for a lot of years, I played center field in college. I played some first base in the minor leagues. I played every time I teams I played on for years growing up. They'd have a fat catcher who couldn't play anywhere else, and they'd <laughs> ask me if I could play somewhere else. I just wanted to play, so I'd always yeah. say. Yeah, I can play third. I can play second. I can play first, whatever. So I played all over, which helped me play in the big leagues 10 years. And there's so many parents out there today that want their kids to be the shortstop in every game or third baseman every game. It's so helpful when you move these kids around and let them experience different positions to help them in their future if they have a future in baseball. And you were not just fast. You had good base running skills. So I'll ask you, could you steal a base today? (laughs) Uh, 90 feet. Are you talking or can we shorten it up? (laughs) (laughs) Um, if something really, really strange happened, like a, a a bomb in the stands and somebody was distracted and the catcher fell down and the second baseman (laughs) shortstop pulled, pulled a groin on the way to the bag. Yeah, I could, I could jog down there. (laughs) uh, The reason reason I asked that we're, I'm I'm sorry, go ahead. Here's what I, I get uh, some of our minor league kids all the time that think they're fast when I go out and, and get in uniform and, and instruct a little bit from time to time. I'll say uh, to one of them, you know what? I can still run pretty well. I'll be 72 in October, but I can still run pretty well. I said, I'll race you for a hundred bucks. And they say, what? You'll race me for a hundred bucks and we'll get ready to race and get ready to go like 90 feet or whatever. And, I, and, I, and I'll say, uh, and I'll go about one step and let them run down there. And they say, okay. They'll say, give me my hundred bucks. I said, I didn't say I'd beat you. I said, I would race you for a hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you owe me a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked about Ted Williams and I heard a story and this was in uh, early nineties, maybe. Um, and he was in his seventies. I know that. And, uh, batting was down and somebody, and I think it was when pitchers started throwing really hard and, and a reporter asked him, you know, do you think you could hit uh, these pitchers that are throwing real hard? And he said, Oh, I think I, I could probably hit over 300. And the reporter said only 300. He goes, remember I'm 73 years old. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He was, uh, he grew up in San Diego where I did. And went to Hoover High School where my wife went to school. So um, it was kind of cool to get to meet him years yeah. ago and uh, with everything he did. Of course, you probably heard the story too, David, about uh, you know a catcher complaining one time about a, a pitch right down the middle. He was known 
for his strike zone ability and knowing exactly if pitch was a quarter inch off the plate, pitch probably hit a third of the plate and the catchers complained to the umpire. That's the strike. He said, the man didn't swing, did he? <laughs> Obviously, it couldn't have been a strike. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was his reputation, knowing the strikes. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, your nickname was Duke uh, because of your ability to imitate John Wayne. Can you give us an imitation? Oh, listen and listen tight, Pilgrim. Over the hill at 0430 with bayonets drawn. Not nearly as good, David, when I haven't had a couple of beers. At okay. least I think I've had a couple of beers. All right. Uh, but that actually started, everybody thinks that's how that started. It actually started in the minor leagues. My first year in San Jose, we had several people named John on the team. So in baseball, there's a lot of nicknames. And I, I was born in Iowa, moved to San Diego like John Wayne. I was a great fan. Same initials, JW. Um, and I just said, well, how about Duke? <laughs> you know, and, we, and all the other Johns got nicknames as well. And, and so it just kind of stuck through right. the years. Now, it, now, how sad is it that most of the people listening, because I think podcasts are generally listened to by younger people. Most of the people who are listening to this don't know who John Wayne is. How sad is that? that is, that's very sad. You know, <laughs> here's another story. <laughs> I used to go out with our minor league kids at seven o'clock in the morning in the hot summer when those kids in the Arizona league, rookie league out there. I said, okay, you guys got to be here early tomorrow morning. Nobody show up late at seven o'clock. And I say, I want you to hear Vince Lombardi time. And they said, who? I said, go Google tonight, Vince Lombardi time. And I had Google and I didn't know what it was going to say, but I knew what Vince Lombardi time meant 15 minutes early for practice. And so sure enough, I Googled that night as well and saw that it was 15 minutes early to be there and not knowing whether these kids would have any clue who Vince Lombardi was. And of course they didn't. They had to Google it to find out all about him. <laughs> First game after the All-Star break, Whit Merrifield had a really good game. And so he's one of the, the players in the post-game Zoom. And Mike Swanson, the Royals vice president of, of media, uh, he's got a bigger title than that, but uh, he introduces him and, and Merrifield had fouled a baseball uh, in batting practice in the all-star game. And it went down and came up and hit him in the eye. So he's got a shiner. And so Swanee says, okay, any questions for boom, boom, Mancini and Merrifield <laughs> went, what, who? And, and he goes, Oh, I forgot. I'm old. He said he was a boxer back before you were born. And most of the reporters up in the press box are like, but we didn't know who it was either. And I thought, oh, my, I'm getting old. I mean, it's not like he said Sugar Ray Robinson, you know, yeah. or somebody like that. Boom Boom Mancini was, you know, in the 80s. But these kids weren't, these guys, these players weren't born in the in the 80s. Yeah, that, uh, that makes me smile all the time when I think about references to older people that uh, they have no clue about, but. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about kid, these kids today. Um, it's not unusual that a former ball player can have three kids involved in pre professional baseball. But what, what is unusual is one of your three kids is your daughter. So how pleased are you that all three of your kids are in the family business? Tremendously uh, pleased, David. Uh, Derek is no longer in baseball, but he went to University of Oklahoma, signed 
1998 and played 11 years in the minor leagues and, uh, you know, probably would have stayed in it longer, but uh, the lifestyle kind of got him with having kids and everything, which happens a lot with, with folks. So he got out and, and started doing some other things. Uh, Dusty, as I said, has been in the game for 28 years now. And Dina, my daughter, who was an All-American volleyball player at Pittsburgh State, uh, got an internship with the Royals probably 16, 17 years ago. And that led to a job in public relations, media relations with Mike Swanson as her boss eventually. Um, Dave Woody was her boss when she first got signed to the Royals uh, contract. And she's been in it ever since doing stuff to run our fantasy camp, which absolutely is the best in baseball. It got sold out this year in 10 minutes, hundred campers. Wow. In 10 minutes, got sold out as soon as it was opened up on the internet. She runs a, a tremendous camp and, and has done it all these years by herself, where a lot of teams have four and five people doing it. So it's pretty amazing. Along with helping at the Urban Youth Academy, the Hall of Fame building, all of George Brett's stuff. So she's got a full plate with uh, with a couple of kids as a single parent, too. So, And luckily, we, we were able to help out, Nancy and I, with, with that. So, yeah, to have three of them in baseball is pretty special. Here's a Here's a – Strange story. I don't know that this will ever be beat by anybody. So we have them and they've all, they all have been with the Royals. Dusty and Derek both played briefly in Omaha for the Royals. So got a paycheck from Kansas City. Dina, of course, me all these years. My wife used to make breakfast burritos in spring training and give them to the clubhouse man, Jeff Davenport, to give to the players before they had all these cooks and chefs coming in and making full breakfast and everything. So she got some checks from the Royals. So all five of our family members have been given a check by the Royals at one time or another. That's so that's pretty pretty amazing to me. I don't think that'll happen too often. Yeah, that's that's impressive. You mentioned fantasy camp, and I wasn't expecting to do this, but I told you earlier that I interviewed uh, Dennis Leonard, and I was not sure I had I I'd met him, but I didn't know him well, and I wasn't sure how he would take this question. But I thought, okay, I'll just do it. I'll just try it. I said, first of all. Before I ask the question, I want to make sure it's you I'm talking about. I said, did you ever participate in the fantasy camps? He goes, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd go every year. You know, he said, I was, it was great. I said, all right, I heard a story, and I don't know if it's true, but, you know, we've talked about him being a bulldog and, you know, being very, very competitive and stuff. I said, one, one time at fantasy camp, uh, this average camper, non-athlete guy gets a base hit off of you, and he's chirping at first base about he got a hit off the great Dennis Leonard. And I said, the story is the next time he came to bat, he wore one in the back. Is that story true? And he goes, well, it was an accident. <laughs> and I said, Leo, you had, you had pinpoint control. He goes, well, he deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Dennis. That's happened a few times. Uh, that happened with Brett Saberhagen one time. And, um, he was throwing about 75, letting him hit the ball. Guy's got a couple line drives off him. He threw one about 90. But the catcher, of course, was a fantasy camper as well. Didn't expect it to come in at 90. Went right past his glove and hit the umpire right in the mask. Oh, no. <laughs> he did a somersault backwards about two or three times. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and uh, you know, sometimes there have been some high heaters above their heads when they, when they feel a little bit frisky in the box. And, 
A lot of that's a great time. We have a great time as, as alumni and the campers have a great time. As I said, it's sold out every year. So it's, you know, we couldn't have it last year's, which makes this next year coming up in 2022 in January that much more special. Yeah. All right. Well, the last question I, I let everybody interpret the question how they want and answer it however, however you want. But I always wrap up my interviews with this. What is your legacy? Um, my legacy, hopefully, will be that I treated all the fans and people who approached me uh, with respect and honored their request for an autograph and had the time to talk to them and smile with them and ask them how their day was going. Um, not what I did on the field, not what I did in baseball, but that I treated people the way I wanted to be treated in life. And I think I've done that for the most part, hopefully. And uh, that's it. That's awesome. Well, I will tell you the first time we ever spoke, um, I was working for the Kansas City Star in 1984. And I, I was mostly, uh, I worked the desk and I did the Royals minor league report and, you know, handled the stats page. But they asked me to do a story. It was as you guys were preparing for the, for the playoffs against the Tigers. And they asked me to do a story uh, involving the big league club. And I can't remember even what we were talking about. And so I called Dean Vogelar and I said, can you give me some players who will be, you know, who I could talk to? And they gave me, I can't remember who else he gave me, but I remember talking to you. And your first question was, how did you get my number? <laughs> but as soon as I said, Dean Vogelar gave it to me, he said, oh, okay. And like, okay, that it's legit. It wasn't a, a, a prank phone call where I accidentally stumbled on your phone number, but you were, you were gracious to this young, young kid just trying to, to, you know, figure his way out around, uh, around baseball and you were gracious. And so that's only been 37 years ago. So, but, but I never got a chance to say thank you for being nice to me when I was just trying to figure things out. Well, you're welcome, David. I'm, I'm glad I could help in a very small way. Uh, you've had a good career as well. And I'm sure I've enjoyed being in this, uh, game for as, as long long time long long time i mean it's, it's pretty special when you i tell people all the time i don't know what i'm going to do when i grow up and have to get a real job that <laughs> <laughs> much fun it's been my passion so i mean not many people can do their passion their entire life that's great well john i appreciate your time look forward to seeing you out at the ballpark sometime soon thanks david i appreciate it thanks for listening to sports connections with david smale Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smail and his work by visiting davidsmailbooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.